Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. We are in uh, week number three of our series of messages entitled Life Hacks, Discovering the Real Shortcuts in Life. If you're not familiar with what the term means, this is the definition of it. It's a strategy or technique adopted in order to manage one's time and daily activities in a more efficient way. So I found a few life hacks for you online this week. Uh, if you want to uh, extend the life of your bananas. You can uh, wrap the stems in plastic and hang them up, and apparently that uh, keeps them fresh a lot longer. So consider your life completely changed by that fact. If you've lost something valuable and small, maybe under your couch, you can use a vacuum cleaner uh, this way to um, get under the couch and find something small. Uh, I like this one. Uh, here's a life hack. If you want to keep the stuff that you've loaned out and reduce the number of friends you have at the same time. So you just take a picture. Every time a friend loans something, just take a picture of it. You can see how excited he is about, you know, really, you don't trust me that much. So, but that's, if you want to have all and keep track of everything, then you can do that. Now, as I've said, I think the phrase life hack is a bit of an overstatement for the kind of advice that you find online in this category. Extending you know, the shelf life of bananas while nice is really not life-changing. So we are looking at God's life hacks. The word that God uses for life hack is wisdom. Much of God's wisdom is summarized in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. And we are considering the major themes of this book in these five messages. Today we're going to talk about the advantage of humility. Very few know about this advantage, and even fewer are taking full advantage of this opportunity. In Proverbs 30, verse 28, says this, A lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. What is this saying? Well, what is it that gives a lizard access into the most important building in the land? Is it the power of the lizard, the prestige of the lizard? No, of course not. It says you can catch one with your bare hand. They're everywhere. It's, it's the profile, it's the low profile of the lizard that allows it to get into places where only the most powerful individuals in the land are allowed. The point is this. If you want to advance in life, the key is not the power you gain or the status that you earn, but the profile that you adopt. It is the humble that are able to advance through some of the toughest obstacles that life presents. And so if you're stuck this morning in some predicament, the way forward quite possibly might be down and not up for you. The problem that we have with humility is that there's a pretty significant misunderstanding about what it is to be humble. So what does humility look like? In Proverbs 21, verse 24, it says, The proud and arrogant man, Mocker, is his name. He behaves with overweening pride. So you find throughout the book of Proverbs that the, the name that's given to a proud person is Mocker. Now, to mock means to talk down to, to elevate yourself above somebody else by looking down on them and talking badly about them. Now, there is a good kind of pride. It's between just you and God. We often call it taking pride in yourself. That's a good thing. Good pride is when you know what you did was right and good, and God knows what you did is right and good. And so you feel an appropriate sense of pride. You don't need anyone else's comment on your life to feel good about what you did. You, you're taking pride in yourself, and God agrees. But most pride is not of the good variety. Bad pride elevates itself by looking down at somebody else, at the expense of someone else. It's no longer just you and God in the form. It's not enough for 
God to agree that what you did was right and good and you to know that what you did was right and good. Now you need to try to prove your status to other people. And that's when things get off track. You're comparing yourself to others and putting them down. Now, humility doesn't do that. It, it takes a very different approach in life. It adopts a low profile in, in three particular settings. And I want us to, to understand the power and the importance of humility. So we're going to look at these, these three settings that humility shows up in a, in a humble profile. Setting number one is this. If I am humble, before God, I bow. Before God, I bow. Both humility and pride are rooted in the orientation of our relationship with God. Humility is a proper orientation towards God. Pride is a wrong orientation towards God. So in Proverbs 3.34, it says, God mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. God mocks mockers. What does that mean? Well, very simply, if we talk down and look down on and talk down about God, he will talk down about us. Now, when we mock, it's all just talk. I mean, that's what we do. We just talk badly about somebody else. But our words don't actually have the power to lower anybody. I mean, they, they, they can cause someone to choose to feel bad because we've said something really hurtful. And if we have the power and position, we might be able to cost them their job or their position at a company. But just because, say, we demoted somebody or fired somebody or said something harsh and mean about somebody else, it doesn't mean that their life has actually been lowered. It doesn't mean that now because we spoke, their value now just went down several notches. They may need to have been fired, but that doesn't mean that suddenly their value has ceased to exist because we now spoke words. But God's words are very different than our words. God spoke, and what we now call the Big Bang happened. God spoke, and creation came to exist. And so you don't want God mocking you, because when God says, down, down you go. They're not just words. They frame and shape reality. Now, this is not God being spiteful. It may sound like it, well, God's saying, well, if you mock me, I'm going to mock you. It may sound petty and spiteful, but that, that's not what this is describing. It's describing the, just the natural consequences of pride toward God. For example, if, if you mock or look down on or defy, say, the law of gravity, who wins? Well, gravity does. And in a sense, gravity ends up mocking you for mocking gravity. Now, there's not words that are spoken, that's just the way reality is. You mock something that's real, and reality mocks you. It wins. And so if you mock or look down on or defy God and his ways, who wins? God does. He's the foundation of reality. Our ability to sense up and down comes from being part of a gravitational field from being a part of this gravitational field here on, here on Earth. So up is this direction, down is this direction, because we are on the Earth, and the Earth has a gravitational field. When the space shuttle used to fly, you would often see it flying upside down in pictures like this one. But it didn't feel upside down to the astronauts inside because there is no gravity in space. 
they're outside of the gravitational pull for the most part of the Earth. So there, there really is no up, and there really is no down in space because they're not within a gravitational field. Now, gravity is not only a physical phenomenon. It exists in the realm of the soul as well. Gravity is, is defined as, as an attraction of objects. So, for example, our body is attracted to the Earth, and that determines what is up and what is down to us. Well, why is our body attracted to the Earth? It's because the Earth has greater mass than our body. This is one of the laws of physics. Heavier objects attract lighter objects. And so the planets are in orbit around the sun for this reason, because they are much smaller than the mass of the sun. Now, we were designed at a soul level to be attracted to God, to be in orbit around him. Why? Simply because of the reality of the fact that he is the true center of the universe. He has the greatest mass. Now, spiritual weight is measured not in pounds, but in position. God is the most important. That's his position. But we have put ourselves in the center of the universe. We now believe that we are the most important people. This, this is pride. Now, to do this, we've had to reduce the weight of God and increase our weight. Now, of course, we can't do that in reality, but we do this in the, our mind, in the way we think. And in doing so, we mock God when we put ourselves in the center and push him into orbit around us. We expect God to, to exist for our purposes and to make our life the way, work the way we want it to. But our imaginary weight hasn't, in fact, changed the facts. And so now we spend most of our lives trying to maintain this gravitational illusion by proving to ourselves and everyone around us how important we really are. We're insecure because we know we've taken on a job that's bigger than our mass allows. And so we demand that life orbit around us rather than God and his ways. And everyone now is pretty busy trying to get people and circumstances to orbit around them. Of course, the problem is none of us have the actual mass to pull this feet off. Now, let's say, for example, if the Earth, Earth was somehow placed in the center of our solar system, what would happen to the sun and all of the other planets that were placed in orbit around the Earth? Well, the planets would collide. They'd all collide. Because the earth just doesn't have the mass, doesn't have the gravity to, to pull that feet off. And this is what has happened to us. We try to get people and circumstances in proper orbit around our life, and it is such stress because we, we don't have the mass. And, of course, people are trying to do the same with us. So we're trying to get them in orbit around us. They're trying to get us in orbit around them. What happens? Well, worlds collide. Conflict ensues. Stress goes up. So humility, and this is important to understand, humility is not a kind of low self-esteem where you just, you know, you, you shrink your shoulders down and you take no initiative and you have no energy and no dreams and no passion because you're, well, you're just a lizard. That, that's not humility. Humility is not low self-esteem. It, it's an accurate understanding of where you fit in the universe. You, you have a very important part in the universe. It's just not at the center. The humble person understands that. They understand that they and everyone else is not at the center that God is. 
So in humility, we bow to the reality of the situation. We bow before God and put him at the center where he belongs. Now, when we do that, something amazing happens. When we humble ourselves, God gives us, as this verse says, grace. He gives us grace. What does that mean? Well, grace basically allows all kinds of things that were hard or impossible now become possible and easier. That's what grace does. You see someone doing something with grace, what you're really saying is they make it look easy. They're taking something very difficult and making it look easy. Now, if you watched any of the Olympics this past summer in Rio, you saw a lot of grace in motion. You know, this is a picture of pole vaulting. To me, that was one of the most amazing things. Every time I watch pole vaulters, I'm just, how do they, how do they ever learn how to do that? They make something that if I were to try to do it, I'd injure myself. They make it look very easy. Athletes make the impossible possible. Now, they do that. How do they get their grace? A lot of training. Years and years and years of hard and diligent work. And because of all of that effort, they are able to do something very difficult in a graceful way. Now, if like an athlete, we work hard on the right things, life will be easier for us. There will be more grace to the way we move through life. But even with our best efforts, there is so much in life that's out of our control that we can't make look easy, that is, in fact, impossible. Things like our own sin. How, how could we ever pay the price for that? Areas in our life where we find ourselves stuck and we can't change. How, how could we ever change some of those things? We, we need more than just our own effort to make things look easier and possible. We, we need the muscle of heaven. We need God's help, his grace. And so God offers his grace. Now, if you receive God's grace, life is still going to be hard. You're still going to need to work diligently. But the difference between a life lived with God's grace and without God's grace is significant. It's kind of like the difference between you and me, an Olympic athlete, pole vaulting. You know, I'm, you don't want to see me try that. It would look anything but graceful. And that's what it looks like when, when we try to live our life without God's grace. It's, it can get pretty messy and pretty embarrassing. Now, God's grace only works while we are in orbit around him. If we, if we get out of orbit and we decide to put ourselves in the center, God says, all right, you're off creating your own solar system. There you go. I'm not, I, I don't help with those. I help with people who are in orbit around me. God needs to be in the center of our life, not just one of the many important planets in orbit around our life. And that involves a pretty significant decision, a decision to bow before the reality of who God is and who we are. And that big decision needs to be followed up by many bowing decisions after that. Because the fact is, just because you decided to put God in the center of your life maybe years ago doesn't mean that your orbit around him has remained stable. It's very easy to stop bowing and start mocking. How, how is it then that we mock God? Well, usually we don't look up to the heavens and verbally say negative things about God. I mean, maybe if we're upset, we might, but that's not normally not the way we mock. Our mocking is far more subtle than that. One of the ways we tend to mock God is we mock those that are made in his image, other people. You know, I've got two children, 
And if you decide to begin speaking badly about my kids, you and I are going to have a problem. And just like any parent. The reason is because, not only because I love my kids, but they, they reflect some of me. And so if you put them down, if you mock them, then it's a direct reflection on me. And that's the same way it is with God. If we mock those made in his image, God takes that very personally. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't ever evaluate people if we're in a job situation and we can't ever decide that you know, they're, they're not, no longer a good fit for this and those kinds of things. But the moment we start demeaning people, the moment we go beyond appropriate understanding of, of where people are at and we start demeaning them and we start treating them as less than precious people made in the image of God, God says, you're, you're mocking me. When you mock them, you're mocking me. So, if I bow before God, before God I bow, then I don't mock people. I don't mock people. When, when we treat others with no respect, we are mocking the one who made them and loves them. Everybody needs basic respect because of the fact that God has made them. Another way we tend to mock God is we mock our circumstances. We look down on what's happening to us, and we grumble about it, maybe to no one in particular. But when we grumble, even if we grumble to somebody else about what's going on in our life, we are grumbling to someone in particular, and that someone is the one who could change our circumstance but isn't, God himself. So if I bow before God, I don't mock people, and I don't mock my circumstances. You see, when we complain about our life, we are mocking the one who runs life. We're looking down and saying, it shouldn't be this way. If I was in charge, we are implying, I would do better than this. I wouldn't allow this to happen. And we are refusing to bow to the God who has allowed this to happen. And often when we do that, we miss out on what we can do about the situation because we're busy blaming God for what is less than ideal. And we miss out on what God might really want to do in us and do through us. And this all comes from the arrogant assumption about what we deserve. Most people wake up most, most mornings with a strong sense of entitlement, with themselves firmly fit in the center of their universe. That's how you know if you're in the center of your universe. You, you move through your day with, with a high level of expectation about the way you should be treated and the way life should go as if you're at the center. We all do this. And we wake up with a sense of, you know, I deserve to be treated a certain way by my spouse or my children or my coworkers or my boss. I deserve a break. I deserve a little recognition. I deserve to enjoy the fruits of my labor. I certainly don't deserve to be cut off in traffic or to be ignored by, you know, people that I'm doing business with or to be patronized by others. And whenever that happens, boy, the anger lets us and everyone know that they had better get into orbit around us. And so our emotions rise and fall each day on what we think we deserve. And we, we miss the truth that as long as we mock, we're going to get little to no help from God. Now, I've spent more time on this particular profile, the first one, because, well, this is at the foundation. If we're going to be humble, it has to start in our relationship with God. We, we have to get a firm grasp on what reality is and bow to that and do that again and again and again. 
Because if we don't get this right, we're definitely not going to be able to do the next two. But now let's look at number two. If I'm humble, before God I bow. And then secondly, before valid leaders, I follow. I follow. This is where humility gets real. Up to this point, it's been something in your head, which is very important, in your heart, which is very important. But it's when you begin following leaders that you, you find that humility has some teeth to it. It's very difficult to do. In Proverbs 13, verse 1, it says, A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a mocker does not listen to rebuke. Our first exposure to leadership is with our parents. They are the first ones to say no to us. In fact, most little ones, this is the first word that they really will learn, no. Because their parents are, well, in most cases, trying to save their lives. No, don't do that. They are the first ones to discipline us, which means to bring consequences into our life. And by doing so, they are the ones to inform us that we are not, in fact, the center of the universe. Every child, by the time they're two, is convinced that they are, and every parent's job is to inform them that they, in fact, are not. And it's the first authority in our life. And as children, we will either humble ourselves and listen to and heed their instruction, or we won't. I know some of you may have had bad parents, and some of you had very good parents. And of course, in a fallen world, there's going to be good leaders and bad leaders. Now, you can't choose your parents, but as you move forward in leadership, if, if you can, choose good leaders, not bad ones. But mockers, whether they're 2-year-old mockers or 16-year-old mockers or 42-year-old mockers, they will not listen to those in authority over them. They know better. They are smarter. And they will not listen to a rebuke. The humble, however, can be taught by God because they will follow leadership. You see, it's one thing to humble yourself before God and follow him. It's another thing to humble yourself before a person and follow them. That's far more difficult. But that's how God has decided, for the most part, to lead us. Instead of leading us just one-on-one, -on -one, he puts human leaders, like our parents, and then as we get jobs, our bosses, and our government authorities. He puts leaders over us. Now, why doesn't God just lead us directly? Well, because if you only follow God one-on-one, -on -one, you can very easily pretend follow him. Here's what I mean by that. Imagine you worked at a business where the boss was never seen by anyone. But everyone reported one-on-one -on -one directly to the boss. There was no org chart underneath the boss. So everyone had a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the boss, but nobody ever saw the boss. What would happen at that business? Well, human nature being what it is, people would start doing whatever they wanted to do. And then if anyone said, hey, why are you doing that? They'd say, well, the boss told me to do it. And because no one's ever seen the boss, that couldn't be checked. And they would get away with doing whatever they wanted to do because they could claim the boss told them to do it. Now, of course, no business would ever be organized this way because you couldn't accomplish anything this way. But this is what we tend to do in our relationship with God. I mean, God offers to have a relationship with us. But we don't see God. And so the tendency is we tend to project whatever we think, 
whatever we want to do onto God. And whenever someone says, hey, what are you doing? We just say, well, yeah, God told me to. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, uh, you know, I don't, what can you say? That's kind of code for shut up about giving input to my life. I'm not open to any input. God told me to do this. Also, you know, that's, that's the trump card. Nothing else can be done. You know, on we go. So we tend to project what we want onto God and sign his name to the bottom of our wishes. And because God never physically shows up, we all can get away with this. This is why God leads us through human leaders. It's the main way the invisible God can help us when we get off track. You know, if you're a child and you're getting ready to run out of the street, God's not going to show up physically and say, stop. He's going to have your dad or your mom say, stop. And that's just the beginning of how he wants to protect us and lead us through life. But in order for that to happen, humility has to become real. You can't pretend follow a human leader. You can pretend follow God, but you can't pretend follow a human leader. If you pretend follow at work, you get to find another job pretty soon. You have to actually really follow if you're going to do that. Now, this doesn't mean you follow human leaders blindly off a cliff. That's why I've said, before valid leaders, I follow. Well, what's a valid leader? A valid leader is someone who actually has authority, valid authority over your life. Your parents are the first ones. Teachers, beyond that. Bosses, beyond that. On and on it goes. There are valid leaders. So just because someone wants to run your life, you shouldn't then say, okay, I'll, I'll let you lead my life. No, they're not a valid leader. They're just trying to get you in orbit around them. And if they are asking you to do something that's in violation of what God has clearly said in his word, you do, you do not follow them at that point. Even if they're in a valid position, they have disqualified their leadership over you. You don't follow that person to do what is wrong. But even if you disagree with the leader, and even if you don't like the leader, that doesn't make them invalid. In fact, it could be that leader that God wants to correct something on you, and that's why you disagree with them, because you don't want to be corrected. You don't want to listen. You are, as most people tend to think about themselves, you're the smartest person in the room. And so you're not going to follow. So before valid leaders, I follow. Now, if you keep changing out leaders in your life, that, that may be fine. I mean, especially in our country, we, we can change jobs. We can change a lot of leaders. We, we get to do elections. We can change leaders. But if you keep changing out leaders personally, it could be that you're just leapfrogging to where you actually want to go, and you're never actually following. Just about the time when you think your leader is stupid, and you keep getting a new leader, and then that one gets dumb, and then you get another leader, and that one gets dumb. Just watch out. It may be that you're not really following leadership at all. You're just leapfrogging to where you want to go. So before valid leaders, I follow. And then lastly, before others, I admit my sin. I admit my sin. Proverbs 14, verse 9 says, Fools mock at making amends for sin, but goodwill is found among the upright. Fools mock at making amends for sin. Why? Well, the whole idea of being honest about the flaws in your life and being willing to admit those flaws when you've sinned 
and being willing to make it right, well, that whole idea is something that the arrogant person will shake their heads at and look down on. They'll never do that. Why? Well, because in order to be proud, you can't let anyone see who you really are. You have just become the sun in your solar system. You have just become the center of your galaxy. But you're, you don't have the mass to pull it off. And so the last thing you can do is let anyone see behind the curtain to see what's really true of you. you you've you've got you've to maintain this bigger-than-life persona. You've got to bluster your way forward. You can't be honest. You've got to hide the parts of your life that make you look bad. And you have to pretend that you do have it all together when, in fact, you don't. And that, well, that's a lot of pressure. And it makes for, for some pretty bad and shallow relationships. It is, well, it's just humbling, to be honest. Recently, my wife asked me a, a question just a couple weeks ago, and I, I responded coldly to her. I was a little upset, and I responded, you know, in that attitude. And I spent the next 30 minutes in my own mind, coming up with excuses of why I had done nothing wrong and I did not need to ask for her forgiveness. Now, this, this is all in my head. She didn't say a word. 30 minutes. I thought about the pressure that I was under, which made my response completely reasonable. I thought of the timing of her question, which I thought, you know, could have been timed a little better, which was the whole cause behind my response was, was the timing of her question. And I pretty much come to the conclusion that the size of the sin that I'd committed was, in my estimation, barely, barely a sin. I mean, it just eked across the line of, you know, the buzzer had gone off just slightly, just a light infraction. Most refs would not have noticed it at all. And I, all this was going on in my mind. Why? I just didn't want to humble myself about something like that. I just, I just wanted to move, move you know, let's just, let's just go forward. Let's just pretend that didn't happen. Why, why is it so hard to, to ask forgiveness? Well, it's because it's so humbling. Well, after about 30 minutes, I finally admitted my sin, and I asked my wife to forgive me. What happened? Well, exactly what this verse says happened. The goodwill between us was restored, and it was deepened. What's goodwill? Well, it, the word literally means to accept with approval, to have, to have good hearts towards one another. Now, you'd think that admitting your sin would be met with disapproval, not approval. I mean, you, you're just admitting that you're a flawed person. And humility or pride says you can't do that. They'll pile on, and some people may. But the fact is, your sin is no great secret to the people in your life. It's not a shocking revelation. And my wife was not shocked. Her response was not, oh, are you kidding me? I thought I married a pastor. And I, I, after 31 years of marriage, now you're telling me that you sin? No. This was not a surprise to her at all. Me admitting the truth of my sin didn't add to her knowledge of me. It added to her trust in me. It increased the goodwill between us. You see, because if I won't admit my sin, if someone won't admit their sin, the chance of them doing again is pretty high. I mean, if they, if they wrong you, and they won't even admit that anything happened, well, then 
you realize I, 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 I need to kind of watch out about this person because they can be dangerous. And they don't even think what they did was wrong, and it really was. When you make amends for your sin, I recommend that you say these words. Would you forgive me for, and then you state what the sin was. Would you forgive me for lying? Whatever it was, state it. I think this is important because a lot of people will just simply say, I'm sorry. And that, you know, that's, that's kind of a move towards humility. It's like a kind of a swoon of humility, but not a complete humility. Because when you say, I'm sorry, you're expressing an emotion. That's what sorry says. I feel sorrow. You're expressing an emotion about what happened, but you're not assigning any responsibility. You know, you're like, I'm, I kind of feel bad. It's like years ago, a gal backed into my car, and I got out to talk about the accident, and she said, I'm sorry, and she popped in her car, and she started driving away. <laughs> so I ran out in front and said, no, 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 and she stopped and said, you can't just say sorry. You, we've got to talk about the damages here. That, this is what sorry is. It's like, sorry, boom, on we go. It doesn't assign any responsibility. You're not taking responsibility. And if you say, like a lot of people do, well, I apologize. Well, that, that's a little, little lower, a little more humble. You are taking responsibility for what happened. But by not asking them to forgive you, you're leaving the relationship unclear, kind of in limbo. When you say, would you forgive me for this sin? You are taking responsibility for what you did. You're not blaming them for any part that you might feel they have. You're just dealing with what you did that was wrong. The only thing you can control. And you're asking them to forgive you. You're asking that restitution between you relationally occur. Now, it may take, depending on how hurtful the sin was, it may take them a while to say, I forgive you. Or maybe after saying it, it may take them a while for their emotions to catch up. It may take longer for their trust to be rebuilt, but at least now the break has been repaired. And now goodwill can be built by actually saying, would you forgive me? Humility is very counterintuitive. It's never impressive to look at, and almost no one aspires to be humble. But it's God's secret passageway forward in life. Over and over again, if you're stuck, Humility is the way forward. Like the lizard in the king's palace, you, you'll look at the end of a humble person's life and ask, how did they get there? How did that happen? That's the way humility is. Well, the way they got there was again and again. When life was hard and their agenda was thwarted, they bowed in humility before God and accepted what God was doing in the situation. They didn't go passive but they didn't mock. Again and again, when their leaders corrected them, when their leaders rebuked them, they listened and they followed rather than found people to talk bad about their leaders too. And again and again, when they sinned, they didn't excuse it or ignore it. They admitted it and they asked for forgiveness. And so as it says in Proverbs 11 too, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. The challenge with this is when pride comes, 
then comes disgrace in about 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years. If the disgrace was instant, we would not be that, we wouldn't be that proud. If the moment your heart got proud, bam, your life got nailed. We'd knock it off. Same thing with humility. If the, the moment you humbled yourself, life, you, you, your wisdom and life just, just took off and it became great, we'd really be humble. But you see, there, there's, there's a big delay factor in these. You get arrogant and you start in motion the wheels of your disgrace. No idea how long it'll take. It, it could be a year. It, it could be decades. But, it, but it'll come. Because you've just put yourself in the center and you're not, in fact, able to pull that off. Collisions will occur. Same, with th same thing with humility. People may look down on you, may think poorly of you, but in the end, they're going to look at your life and say, wow, how did that happen? So we have a choice to make. Based on what you've heard this morning, let me ask you this. What's your next step? Do you need to change your approach to your boss? The fourth idiot you've worked for? Is there a sin you need to be at, you ask forgiveness for? Or do you need to once again, or maybe for the first time, bow before God and put him at the very center of your life and make the choices to keep him there again and again because the drift will occur. I, I challenge you to, to take a step on this. Don't let these just be words that you think, huh, okay, let me think about that. That's fine, think about it, but take a step. Humble yourself. Let's pray together. Father, we do admit the truth that you are at the very top. You're at the very center. And we admit that we often try to put ourselves there. It must, in a sad and tragic way, look laughable as we try to get our world and everyone to orbit around us. And so many are under such stress and strain because they're not bowing before you. Father, help us in humility to bow before you, to put you at the center. And then to, to get real traction or humility, God, help us to follow those in leadership. Follow those that you've placed over us right now, even if we disagree with them, even if we think we're far smarter than them, to recognize that you are the one that stands behind the face. And you want to lead us through them. And then before other people, as we... As we sin, help us to not take the normal course of covering it up or pretending it didn't happen, but to be honest and humble ourselves and go to those that we've wronged and ask for their forgiveness. This is so counterintuitive to us, and so we ask for your help. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who modeled humility for us. Amen. I want to invite the